0: So we're excited that you're here, excited to be together. Um, Man, listen, amazing event, amazing news from our middle school VBS this past week. Uh, We are so thankful for those who engage to make sure that those events are awesome. If you helped serve at middle school VBS this past week, would you stand up really quick so we can just let everybody see who you are and just say thank you? Yeah, absolutely. It was an awesome event, and uh, if you wonder why my hair looks the way that it does, this is why you do not get involved in missions offerings at a middle school event. Um, some of you are thinking, well, what's wrong with it? Well, it doesn't normally look like this. Mine does grow back, um, for some of you who are wondering, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting back to normal, but, uh, you know, look, the kids showed up. is amazing. In elementary and in middle school, over the last two weeks, uh, I, I, actually it's been a three-week period now, the students, the kids, uh, raised, they gave generously $3,220 to our missions emphasis. Yeah, that's awesome. Every dime of that, will go to Puerto Vida Church in Costa Rica, and they're going to be doing a soccer camp. They're going to be doing a fitness camp, and then we're going to be extending a piece of concrete that they have in the roof where they have a skate ramp where their kids have activities outside, and so it's going to make it a little bit better for them, especially this time of the year and coming into the months ahead when it's a rainy season for them. We do have a very small surgical team going down there. It wasn't announced. It's been on the down low because it's our first team going back out since COVID, which we're excited about and it's one of their first teams coming in uh, since then. So we're looking to kick off mission trips again and seeing reports and pictures and people giving their experience of going to the various mission partners that we have. So we're excited to be able to take that money and see those things done for them. So we're looking forward to it and excited to be able to celebrate, you know, such an awesome event as well. I've got one quote to start the message today that I think can help really sum up the idea of what we're talking about. And it simply is a quote by Oliver Wendell Holmes that says, what lies behind us and what lies before us are small matters compared to what lies in us. It's a real important truth that is materialized in a simple but powerful statement. Um, Listen, if you got no hope this morning, I'm hopeful that I got enough hope for you. I I know that I'm in relationships with some guys to where when we get together and we share what's going on in our hearts, sometimes I'm not very hopeful, but they got enough hope for me that sometimes their hope rubs off on me. And it's true. Hope is transferable. And so I want this message today. My prayer is that it's hopeful. It's really geared to the church. Those of us who are believers and understand to a certain degree our our membership of the kingdom of God and our place as the church of God and the kind of hope that that brings us. And I want us to be reminded of that. We are in a sermon series and we will be through the rest of the summer where we're looking at the narrative arc of the Bible. What's the central theme and big idea of the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation? We've been looking at events that are bigger than stories because they're historical, factual moments in time that aren't just random in God's Word. And if you haven't been able to keep up, uh, you can use our Bible app or our app, our church app, or you can use Spotify or or the um, podcast, iPodcast. Our messages are available out there where you can catch up. Because, man, I'm telling you, there are some messages in there where I guarantee you you're going to be like, wow, I never understood why that was in the Bible, now I do. And I see how it's linked together with the whole narrative arc, of God's story. And, and in many ways today as we move into the book of Daniel, we're moving into a time that is post the kings, to, so to speak. If you remember, we looked two weeks about the kings and how they were a problematic bunch and there was an issue with the people and the nation of God as a result. And they've all been captured and carried off now into exile in Babylon by these other empires around them. And the book of Daniel is written and shared during that time. And and as we look at that and as we think about that, I I want us to just simply focus in on some events there uh, that, that teach us about how we can trust God more and know God more. And what we really find in the heart of this book that is sometimes very complicated, to be honest with you, we find, in my opinion, probably the core of what this whole sermon series is about. It is the heart and soul of the narrative arc of God's story. It's really essential, and we can pull it out in just a couple verses, which we will do. But, but before we get there, let me just simply help you understand the book better. Now I did this in first service, and it flopped terribly, so I know second service is going to come through, all right? You're going to be honest? All right, uh, there were two people, I think, that were honest in first service and probably about 25 or more that were dishonest, but that's okay, that's a whole other story. How many of you in here have never even read and opened up the book of Daniel? All right, we got a few here. Appreciate your honesty, man, that's awesome. Here's the reality. It, some, we're like, Daniel, that's a book? I just thought that that was my kid's name. I didn't realize, you know, how back it. Here's the thing about this last part of the Old Testament is it gets blended together like a smoothie. You've got the, the historical books, you've got the poetry, you've got the prophets, and you've got the majors and minors. And we all just think everything's moving nice and timely from left to right. All that stuff overlaps. In fact, um, Evan, who's interning with me as a preaching intern this summer, he, he created this awesome timeline that's around you on the seats that helps you better understand, oh, this is where Ezra fits. Oh, this is where the prophet Habakkuk fits. It's not just moving from left to right, but there's all this overlap. And And right there in the middle of that, when all this is going on, Uh, The nation of Israel has been carried off into captivity. Uh, Daniel is right in the middle of it. And here's what we get, the very first chapter of the book of Daniel. It sets the stage. It talks about, obviously, Daniel being carried off into captivity with three of his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, which you know them better by their other names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is Daniel and his three friends. Now, they're part of the royal palace in in Israel, so when they're carried off into captivity, you know, the ruling empire, which in this case is Babylon, would say, oh, you're a farmer, you go over there. Oh, you're this, you go over there. Oh, you go over there, right? And so because these guys were educated, they came into the royal palace. They became wise men, so to speak, counselors to the king. And so they were very close to him. And, and chapter 1 sets that up. Now, here's what's interesting. In chapters, four, uh, three and six, chapters 3 and 6, you have two stories that I guarantee you everybody in here have heard, even if you've never read or opened the book of Daniel. You have the fiery furnace, and you have the lion's den. Who of you here has ever heard about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? Throw a hand up. How many of you have ever heard about Daniel in the lion's den? Those stories are found in chapter three and chapter six of Daniel. Now, in chapters four and five, you get accounts of the arrogance of man. The king of Babylon becomes like a beast in the field because he won't humble himself before God, but then he humbles himself before God and he's restored to leadership over the kingdom. And then his son, same thing, but he doesn't humble himself to God and he dies. It's a good object lesson. And what bookends all of this is chapters 2 and chapter 7, which is where the heart and soul, in my opinion, of the message of Daniel and the entire narrative arc of God's story really comes to life. Here's what happens in chapters 2 and chapter 7 in these two bookend chapters. You have these dreams and visions from God interpreted by Daniel. It's really powerful and really important. So in chapter 2, you first have the king of Babylon, he has this dream, and it disturbs him. He says, I want the wise men to interpret this dream for me. But this king is kind of skeptical, like me, and he's like, no, I don't want you to interpret it. First, I want you to tell me what the dream was, then you can interpret it. I mean, hey, listen, if you can't tell me what the dream was, how do I know you can actually interpret it correctly? And all the wise men are saying, hey, this can't be done. This is impossible. What you ask is not able to be done. And so the king says, all right, I want all the wise men killed. (laughs) If they can't answer me, they can't tell me my dream and and tell me what it means, I want them killed. So when this news comes back to Daniel, who's one of the wise men, Daniel said, hey, can I go talk to the king? He gets an audience before the king and he says, listen, what you're asking is impossible, but God can do it. So would you give me some time, king? Let me pray, spend time alone with God. He'll tell me the dream. He'll give me the interpretation. So the king says, yeah. And that's exactly what happens. And so let's pick up Daniel chapter 2, verse 31 through 35, where basically Daniel is sharing with the king what his dream was. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance, The head of the statue was made of pure gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold Were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer, like dust in the wind. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock, you remember the one that was not cut out by human hands, it became a huge mountain and filled the entire earth. It's a great statement. And what God is revealing here and what Daniel goes on to tell the king is, he says, the statue represents the empires that exist and will exist until this kingdom will come along and destroy them all. Now, I mean, people sometimes, church culture gets more into arguing over which empire is which and this and that. The gold represents this empire, the silver that one, the baked clay this one, yada yada. Who cares, really, in all sincerity? When we get caught up in trying to determine which one is this, which one is that, we miss the forest for the trees is the issue there. The bigger reality there is there is this rock that is cut out not by human hands that crushes them all. And then it becomes this mountain that is so large that it encompasses the entire earth this rock represents the kingdom of God the anointed one Jesus Christ in his kingdom that is in many ways already doing has done exactly what this text says here's the reality the kingdom of God doesn't have borders where it says it has to stop the kingdom of God is not stuck to one language the kingdom of God doesn't have one particular culture in which it works it is pervasive all over the the world. I get on a plane, fly over to Miramar, and hang out with my buddy Jew and Judah and Call, and and I'm seeing a whole different language and a whole different culture. The amazing work of God happening in a place where I don't get anything but it's still extremely glorifying to God. And and, and anywhere else, right? And this is the beautiful picture that we see here going on within this text that leads us to verse 44 of that same chapter. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it in itself will endure forever. You see, based on this text and the one before it, I mean, it is very possible if you've been here for a short amount of time at Canoe Creek, you've heard us talk about the kingdom as being now and not yet. There are real the kingdom of God is established right now. Jesus is a king who is alive, who is anointed one of God with authority over all things. Right now, and yet there's still some realities about the kingdom that we look forward to. We look forward to that final chapter when Jesus returns. The kingdom is completed in every way, and we get to see all the amazing realities of it there's this idea of the thin places that some authors talk about and some cultures talk about where there are times and moments and places where the the physical reality of this world and the spiritual reality of the world that's going on alongside of it become so close that it's like like paper thin to where you can almost see the other side of what God is doing and preparing in a powerful way. And sometimes these are those moments when Daniel receives these dreams and he talks about them or when John receives a revelation of God He writes us a letter to try and help us understand and see what's going on behind the veil. And there's this powerful reality taking place in chapter 2 about this kingdom, rock not cut out by human hands, that dashes all the nations and kingdoms of this earth. Because at the end of the day, this kingdom is not confined by national borders. It's not beholden to one particular flag. It bows to no rulers and it is timeless, limitless, and boundless. And in chapter 7, this other bookend talks about it even more. In this chapter, Daniel himself ultimately has a vision. He has a dream and he sees these powerful beasts that rule and devour various kingdoms. Once again. Our church culture loves to get caught up in, well, which beast represents which leader and this and that, and the reality of it is, it depends on when you lived. I mean, if you were a first century Christian, Nero was the beast, right? If you lived in Nazi Germany, go figure, right? The reality of it is, we get so caught up looking at the trees that we miss the forest that there's a bigger picture going on here. He talks about the one beast that has ten horns. And you got to understand, in their types of writing, the letter that, that John writes, Revelation, sometimes we try to make everything there literal. Like that's exactly how it's going to look. That's exactly how it's going to happen. But they would write things based on what they're seeing, in these visions not able to articulate it perfectly, so they'd give us pictures, picture writing, to help us understand. And often they would use the image of horns as an image of power. He talks about this one beast in chapter 7 that has 10 horns, signifying he's the most powerful of them all, of these beasts that cause trouble for God's people on this world as well as everyone else. It's just simply trying to build up a really essential and important reality that we find in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7, which is at the heart and soul of this entire narrative arc, in my opinion. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was let into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, indicating there's no one nothing greater than him His power, his dominion is everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that while all the others become dust in the wind, his remains perfect, pure, established forever. Anyone who takes hope in that kingdom, anyone who's excited about that kingdom, anyone who binds their hearts to that king has an eternal hope bound along with it as well. And the message of David is really the heart and at the heart of this entire narrative arc of the Bible because the power that is at work in the world is demonstrated in chapter 7 as the fact that God's plan and God's power is greater. One way I think we can sum that idea up, the message of Daniel, the message of the Bible in a simplistic way is simply this the pattern of humanity is to destroy. The promise of God is to restore. Over and over again, from Genesis to Revelation, we see left to ourselves, wanting what we want, disconnecting from God, we end up carried off into Babylon, into exile, where we destroy what we've been given. And God graciously, over and over again, promises, if you trust me, I can restore you. If you trust me, I can make things out of your life that you never imagined possible before. No matter what it is that you think in a personal manner or even in a corporate manner within church, when we trust God with all of our hearts, he will do phenomenal things in our lives to restore us in ways we never thought was possible and help build us up in ways to do things that we never thought we could do. This place where Daniel is, Babylon, is more than just a physical place. It is a theme throughout the scriptures that is a dreaded theme from the Old Testament all the way in the New Testament. It's this place of destitution. It's this place of difficulty. It's this place of oppression and fear. And the city itself, Babylon, was founded by someone named Nimrod. While we don't historically know accurately, we without a doubt know what his name means. The name Nimrod simply means we will rebel. And so this theme and this image and this picture of Babylon from Genesis to Revelation is simply this. When you choose your own path... When you do as you desire, when you reject God, or you try to simply hold on to whatever it is that your heart longs for in this world by saying and convincing yourself, well, I can still serve God and yet do these things that don't glorify Him. Whatever it is, when we do those things, we are breaking ourselves down, we're tearing ourselves apart, we are taking what God has made beautiful. And we're fouling it up and yet God promises us if we trust him if we return to him if we give our heart to him he can restore whatever it is that we can break now there is a powerful simple video that helps give clarity to this I've mentioned the Bible project several times and we've used a couple of their videos here during this series they do a phenomenal job of taking complex themes within the scripture and and giving us a clear vision for what God is trying to say to us. And so they took the theme of exile and they put it together into a video that will help give us clarity on this entire narrative arc of the Bible. Let's take a minute and watch this together. The promise of God over and over again is ultimately to restore. We have this blessed ability this opportunity to while we have one foot in this spiritual kingdom of god learning how to navigate with the other foot this difficult world in which we live where there's complex issues we're always coming up against and in that place we pray lord Father, we pray your kingdom on earth as it's done in heaven would come to this place in which we live, and we walk that out as much as possible. We often find this consistent difficulty of those two worlds colliding, knowing that God has given us a hope that one day all the kingdoms of this world will be dashed to pieces, will be blown away like dust in the wind, and God's kingdom will be established forever a kingdom where we get the opportunity to be led by a perfect king, the anointed one of God in all that we do. And I'll be honest with you, we are very privileged to live where we live and get the opportunities that we have to use them for God's glory and God's way. Peter really brings this to life, though, this difficulty of living kind of in two places at once one foot in the spiritual kingdom of God, one foot in the physical world in which we live. And he writes by saying something at the beginning of his letter, give you context in the middle and then the end. Look at what he says at the beginning of his letter Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces. He he visions, he sees the church as people who are exiled from the world in which they live no matter where you live. Because look at what he goes on to say in chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and as exiles to abstain from the sexual desires that wage war against your soul in which the world you live. Live such good lives among the pagans around you that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Give yourselves completely over to submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Something we're really excited and easily do. I say that ironically, obviously. Whether to the emperor as to the supreme authority or to governors, who are sent by Him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right? For it is God's will that you, uh, that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. Uh, live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. See, Jesus is telling us there, Peter's writing about what does it look like to live one foot in a spiritual realm, the kingdom of God, yet while we are encompassed around a world where Peter says that we're strangers, we're exiles, we're temporarily here. And then he closes the letter this way. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. The article here could also be interpreted as the referring to as sometimes in the Bible, the church is referred to as a woman, the church. He is saying to you, to me, to the church all time and all places, the church, that is what? A stranger, an alien, no matter where you are. Because your heart longs and knows there's something greater. Your heart has a hope that there is an eternal king who is perfect in every way and his kingdom is without flaw. And until that day in which he comes, we're learning to trust in him, live for him, even in the imperfect places and imperfect ways in which we live. Listen, there is one author who writes about this idea of the indestructible nature of gold. Joseph Harris suggests that all of the gold mined throughout history, some 85% of it at least, is still with us in some sort of form of trinket or collectible or currency. And so he goes on to suggest that the ring on your finger could very well have been a part of Solomon's temple. That some sort of trinket or currency that you have is a part of history going all the way back to Christopher Columbus or tied to some sort of mining and trade port in uh, Mesopotamia in 4000 BC because it has this eternal lasting value to it. And that's why it's used in the way that it's used in the scriptures. Which brings me to the one last verse I want to set on our heart before we prepare to head out of here. Daniel 4.3. How great are his signs? How mighty his wonders? His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. While we have a tendency to destroy things around us, God has promised to restore them. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the fact that The world around us may not always appear to make sense, but you have told us how to see it, understand it, relate to it, and through you, overcome it. We're thankful for the many blessings that we get to experience. We're thankful for the the gifts that you've created for us in this world that, while sometimes impacted or affected by sin, we can at certain times see a thinner veil and be able to see past that, to see your glory, to see your kingdom at work, to see what your future kingdom will look like. And we're thankful for those gifts, whether it's through our family, through friends, through relationships, just through the opportunity of of working and enduring and having purpose and place. We pray that you would help and teach us to see everything that you've given us as a gift that when leveraged for your kingdom and for your glory, brings about restoration in us and around us through the power of your son, Jesus. We're grateful that you anointed him to do only what he could do, putting us in a position to where only a penitent spirit can be transformed and changed. when we are stripped of our pride, when we accept the fact that there is something that is absolutely necessary in our lives that we need, that only you have, it gives us the opportunity to turn to you. Help us every day to make you the king and one who's thrown over our lives to, to lead us, to guide us so that we can live in a world that is dangerous and difficult and hurtful at times with the heart of your son, Jesus, our king, so that we may expand your kingdom in the here and now by sharing him with the world around us. And Father, we pray that your kingdom would come, your will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And all the things that we long for and look forward to, you would bring them into reality soon. That you would fix what is absolutely and fundamentally broke about this world in an eternal way. And Father, whether we're here to see it, We see it in some other form or way in the future when we leave this earth. Lord, we long for it, we desire it. Help us to demonstrate that long end desire and how we are changing and transforming and giving ourselves over to you today, in this moment, in every way. Surrendering our lives, surrendering our families, surrendering our finances, surrendering our world, everything around us. Submitting and trusting that when I try to go my own, all I get is exile. All I get is Babylon. But when I trust you, all I see is glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.